This is Michael Osterlink. Welcome to O Radio, where we explore individual and social transformation through collaborative action. I'm a psychotherapist with a transpersonal and somatic specialization. I'm also a transpartisan social entrepreneur and head instructor at SilFit's Unbeatable Mind Academy. Today's show is brought to you by Synergy Float Center, a premier flotation therapy center located in Old Town Alexandria in Virginia. When you take time to slow down, amazing things can happen. Take care of yourself by booking a float sauna, or one of the other services today, you can book online at synergyfloatcenter.com. Today's guests, I'm excited to have a couple with me today. Uh, we have Dr. Abraham Morkenthaler and Dr. Marion Brandon. Dr. Morkenthaler is an international authority on men's health and a pioneer in treatment of testosterone deficiency in men. He is his research is credited for reversing the decades-old belief that testosterone therapy is risky for prostate cancer. He has published over 150 scientific articles on testosterone, prostate cancer, and male sexual dysfunction, and male infertility. He is also the author of the best-selling book, Testosterone for Life. Dr. Marion Brandon is a clinical psychologist, welcome back, Thank you. and diplomat in sex therapy. She is the author of Monogamy, The Untold Story, Unlocking the Sexy in Surrender. And actually, both of you have also written other books as well, which I'd love for you to plug as we start this conversation. And possibly towards the end of the conversation, if you guys have websites to also plug so people can find your work. But first of all, welcome to O Radio. It's great to see you guys. Thank you. Good to be with you. So what I'd like to do is if you guys could talk about if there's such thing as a typical client that's coming to see you these days. And then we'll take that and we'll kind of step out and we'll look from a larger point of view about the social, cultural, and environmental factors which might be contributing to that typical client. Ladies first, perhaps. <laughs> that sounds great. You know, it's a really good question. I see um, it, nothing necessarily different today than I did, let's say, a decade ago, but certainly. Um, what I do, what I am aware of is what is a typical client for me is becoming uh, perhaps more pervasive um, in our culture. By that, I mean that what we're hearing is research is showing us that people are having less sex. Their uh, rates of sexual concerns are quite high. Um, so these are the kinds of issues I work with in my practice all of the time. But it seems that uh, According to the statistics, more and more people are suffering with these things all of the time. And, and we'll step back and we'll talk about maybe why it's much more pervasive mm -hmm. than it has been in the past. But first, uh, Dr. Abe, uh, is there a typical client for you, sir? Yeah. So um, uh, first of all, thanks for having us uh, on your show. Uh, good to be here. And, and the fact that you're ready to talk about sex and sexuality is like two thumbs up. Because we need we need more of that. We need more of that. Yeah, two thumbs up. <laughs> so, um, you know, I'm a urologist that specializes in sexual medicine, and I've done a lot of work around testosterone in particular. But, you know, what we see that sort of um, flies in the face of sort of the cultural zeitgeist, if you will, is I see a lot of men who are, have trouble. Uh, sexually, often with erectile dysfunction or low desire. And, uh, and it's a major issue for them and in their relationships with their partners. And the reason why I say it flies in the face of the zeitgeist is that, you know, we're in an era now where on the news we hear about folks like Jeffrey Epstein or other 
prominent individuals accused of rape or pedophilia or um, these terrible, awful things. And there's sort of a cultural sense that, oh my God, isn't it enough with these men and sex? But in fact, sex is a part of normal life. It's a critical part of relationships. And when it goes sour and it's not right, it's not just that the men are unhappy because they're not getting some, it's that their partners are often unhappy as well and that the relationship loses something really important. And I think that we have to at the same time hold then two ideas simultaneously. That one is there are these public figures that are you know, bad guys doing bad things. And at the same is that human sexuality is a normal, beautiful thing. And it is critical for relationships and our happiness in this world. Mm -hmm. Right on. So what would you say, uh, Dr. Abel, let's just stick with what you're saying. Um, why do you think, is there something going on culturally, socially, environmentally, some combination of three, which is driving down testosterone levels in males, or maybe there's other factors that testosterone is really a symptom, which I'll get to later. Um, and sex drive, libido is just dropping. Is there like a physio is there an environmental, social, cultural thing that's affecting the physiology of the brain and reproductive organs? So, you know, I don't know that the rates of testosterone are necessarily getting lower. There's some evidence that suggests that may be true. I can tell you it's really prevalent though. And if there is um, a, a cause for it, it's probably obesity. Okay. So when men ha add extra weight, their testosterone gets driven downwards. And uh, it's this funny back and forth two-way relationship. Because if you have a man with low testosterone and you give him testosterone, like you raise it, his fat mass goes down. And if you get somebody to just lose weight, now they have to lose a lot of weight, but if they lose weight, their testosterone will go up. So it's an interesting thing that goes in a couple of directions. Well, I imagine since obesity is, is so much more prevalent than it was a decade ago, you know, that obviously plays a huge role as you're suggesting, Dr. A. But let me ask you, Marianne, mm -hmm. you know, how is, let's stick with obesity. How is that showing up? with your clientele and the troubles that they're having with their libido between you know, man and woman or various combinations of human beings. Right. So I absolutely agree that medical health is critical to sexual health. So this is a really important conversation because sexual health isn't just really about sex, but when people are um, satisfied in their romantic relationship sexually, then they tend to feel more connected to their partner and they feel more satisfied in life generally. So it's a big issue. This is we're talking about, you know, more than sex when we have these conversations. And if someone's body isn't feeling good or is uh, stressed or just in whatever way suboptimal, that will play out in the bedroom for sure. And what happens is people's bodies don't work the same way. They don't have, let's say, the same levels of desire. Their genitals don't function the same way. But also when they're not feeling good in their body, they kind of check out. So not only does their body not feel good, they're not there. So they're kind of like stuck in their head. So they have like no real chance to feel and enjoy sensual pleasure because they're kind of like living above the neck. So there are a variety of problems that, that are sort of like emanate from this obesity crisis that we're talking about. Can I, can I jump in on that? Please, please. Really, it's a really cool story. So just last week I saw a patient. He's 42. He's married. And um, he put on a fair amount of weight. Um, he hadn't had sex with his wife in a couple of years. 
And uh, he, in his own mind, had kind of said, okay, that part of my life is over. But his wife was unhappy. And she pushed him to see me. And he had low levels of testosterone. I saw him back. So the story was incredible. So he had lost 16 pounds. He'd gone off his antidepressants. Um, he had an alcohol issue. He hadn't touched a drink since he started in, you know, with normalization of his hormones. And he was started having sex again with his wife. And he said, you know, I, I hadn't realized how important this was in our relationship. But getting back to what Marianne was just saying is um, that his wife said to him, I said, what did your wife notice about you? He said, she says I'm more engaged in life. You know, when Marianne talks about sort of that front part of the brain and consciousness and being there, being present, that's what was going on for him. And he not only then had this great, you know, improvement in how he felt and in his relationship with his wife, but he started talking about how he was looking forward to things. He was refiguring out his uh, fishing rods and his boat, and he had something to look forward to. So this, the thing about sexuality is, is that it's intricately connected to how we feel about every other part of our lives. Mm -hmm. That's really important and really well said. And I'm, I'm curious now, because you kind of went back and forth and talked about each other now. Um, talk about oh, she's great. <laughs> that? She's great. <laughs> well, I didn't mean it that way, but <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> I meant professional. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Where was your mind, Mike? You're <laughs> laughing. <laughs> so my mind went the same place yours did. <laughs> exactly. I'm the only one here acting professional. <laughs> Tactical breath, you know, control. I'm going to anchor this thing. Okay, that's good. <laughs> so you know, one of one of my concerns with medicine and psychology, and, and I've heard you guys already talk about this, is the siloing effect. You see a specialist, and that specialist not only probably doesn't re refer out to other aspects of human life, they don't even recognize that whatever their field is touches other aspects of human life. And you're really clear that it does. Talk about how you guys actually work together in your practices. That's a great question because, you know, in my mind, sexual, there's nothing more mind-body than sex. I mean, really, it's just this amazing combination of physical sensation and the mind kind of like over, receiving all of that data and then putting meaning to it and anxiety or what have you. So um, I sort of approach uh, my practice with anyone with a sexual concern, I sort of assume there's a medical component in one way or another. And it may be obvious, it may be not obvious, but from my perspective, it's really important for my clients to see someone, um, someone in the medical field who has a sense of how um, whatever's going on for them medically could impact their sex life. So I do see it as intricately related. You know, the, the issue for me, so I, I see exclusively men, and I have this feeling that men uh, are all essentially frustrated auto mechanics in the sense that they come in and they have a problem, and they kind of just want it fixed. And uh, although many of them would clearly benefit from exploring what's happening to them psychologically or in relationships, at the same time, many of them are not particularly open to going there. They say, doc, don't you have a pill or something to fix it? So 
Marianne and I do collaborate on many patients, um, but it's a selected group of men um, who are willing uh, to actually do that kind of work and are open to it. Um, what, what might you both say to a man who wants the immediate gratification, wants a pill to fix their problem, the car mechanic, you know, kind of paradigm, um, how important it is to look beyond that and to look at the psychological and other areas of their life. You know, how might you talk them into broadening their perspective? Both of you. Yeah, well, it depends a little bit on, on the issue. You know, there's an old joke, which is that the patient comes in to see the urologist and and uh, he spends five minutes with him, says, okay, you got ED, here's a pill. And then he goes and he sees the psychologist and the psychologist spends an hour and finds out that the guy can't stand his wife. And, um, and that's the problem. Yeah. So, you know, it, and there sometimes is some truth to that, you know, in terms of getting a snapshot of what's going on. Um, but, you know, there's some men who have complicated stories, like desire, for example. Desire on a physiological basis, what's actually happening in the body, isn't terribly complicated. Um, you know, there are only, in medicine, there are only a, a relatively few number of things that'll cause that. One is low levels of testosterone. Another is side effects of medications. And the other is sort of these, this sort of psychological um, grab bag of stuff like major stress, depression, things like that. And there's some men who seem totally well-adjusted, um, have normal testosterone levels, or maybe they've even been treated and hasn't helped their sex drive. Um, and they're not on any medications that might cause them trouble, but they still don't have desire for sex. Well, then it's clearly that something that's from the neck up, if you will. And, and exploration of those issues and what might contribute really requires somebody who's skilled. And those guys, for example, are uh, examples of men that I would send to Marianne. Now, Marianne, if you're working with a female of a female-male partnership, mm -hmm. I have to imagine that you've run across women who say, I wish I could get my husband or my boyfriend to see you. Mm -hmm. like, how does that conversation go? And you know, how, can you convince the partner or the husband mm -hmm. to come in to see you to deal with some of the things that uh, Dr. Abe has just referenced? That's a really good question. What, you know, the bottom line is insight is empowering. The more we know ourselves, the more powerful we are in the world. I mean, that's just a fact. You can't go wrong with self-knowledge. So that's my primary arguing point because it's kind of indisputable. Um, but I also encourage people to think in terms of what they can get for themselves in a therapy relationship. It's not just about what they have to give or what they have to change. Um, so we're working with a couple and each one has to give and negotiate. And so there must be something he wants too that he can ask for. And so I put that on the table as quickly as possible so it doesn't feel like it's one-sided. Let me, let me ask you both, because uh, Dr. Abe, I heard you talk about stress, and we know that chronic stress has a whole multitude of negative consequences of the physical body. I have to imagine also reduction of testosterone and, and other hormones that would need to function optimally. Um, Marianne and Dr. Abe, let's talk about self-care, mm -hmm. not just testosterone replacement or other hormone replacement, but you know, what kind of things do you guys recommend to in individuals and couples to help them take care of themselves for a to manage your stress differently 
Um, so at least that part of their troubles is taken care of to a certain extent. So stress, people seem only more and more stressed these days. So um, meditation is usually the first thing I'll suggest because we've got great research on it for all kinds of reasons. So there's great research in sexual medicine that meditation can help people tune into their sexual desire. It can help them in a whole variety of ways with sexual concerns. But the bigger picture, it reduces stress. So that's just a win-win across the board. I also very much promote exercise because feeling good and uh, strong in one's body is only going to benefit them in their worldview, their self-confidence, and the bedroom too. So those are two very big points that I stress. And oftentimes people will say, you know, I don't have the time for either of them. And I get that because our lives really are like that, that we don't have the time. But if you don't make the time, we're not going to accomplish the kinds of goals, you know, that there's just really no way around it. So then therapy becomes a, a literal discussion about how do you find the time for this? Um, and sometimes it does require some pretty significant life changes for people, but it's always in their best interest. So I, I figure since uh, you and I had a discussion, evolutionary biology, kind of the paleoprimal approach, yeah. you, talk, you know, the benefits of exercise. Meditation, you know, obviously is a long-term practice, been around for thousands and thousands of years, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. But I'm also curious for Dr. Abe, you know, in terms of evolutionary biology, I would have to imagine that testosterone is at its highest when we're supposed to, from nature, reproduce. And then there's a natural reduction. First of all, is that accurate? And is that something that you could deal with? To, so you don't have the natural reduction, you can actually have a stabilization or an increase or talk through that from an evolutionary biology perspective and modern science, if you wouldn't mind. Right, so there is this um, assertion out there that's got some evidence behind it that as we get older, uh, it becomes more and more likely that we're gonna have low levels of testosterone. And just as you kind of described, this idea that somehow we lose testosterone as we get older. It turns out that if you look at men, this is data that came out of the European Male Aging Study published a few years ago, that for men who maintained their optimal body weight or body mass index, testosterone levels didn't budge. Nice, nice. So that was in men between the ages of 40 plus up to about 80 years old. Okay. So what really happens for a lot of men is that as we go to older, we put on weight. And our weight drops our testosterone and causes all sorts of other problems, inflammation in the body and things like that. So it's certainly possible to be an 80-year-old man, fit, <laughs> and, have, and have good levels of testosterone that don't need any attention. That's really good. And let me stick on the testosterone and let me ask you a couple of questions. So exogenous, and correct me if I'm wrong, and, and kind of head down whatever tangent you'd like, but a few things. So... If a human being, if a male takes exogenous testosterone, it reduces their own natural production of testosterone. Right. Accurate. Is that a, is that a long-term problem? Or, and if it is, does that mean you have to be on testosterone to, to stabilize yourself forever? Like, how does that actually function in the male? Yeah, that's a common misunderstanding. People believe that once you start testosterone, you're stuck on it for life. And for a lot of people, that's a real stumbling block. Like, oh, I don't know that I want to be on something the rest of my life. It is true that when we give testosterone to a man, we have sensors basically in, in the brain at the pituitary gland and the hypothalamus that detect high levels of testosterone. 
and they turn off or turn down their signal to the testicles to make our own natural testosterone. So to some extent, when men are on testosterone therapy by injections or pellets or gels or however we're doing it, the testicles do go to sleep. And the major impact of that is that sperm counts will go down. So that men who are trying to make babies should not be on testosterone itself. We have other strategies for them. But this fear that you're then stuck with this because your own body is turned off is not true because when you stop the testosterone treatment, you're, the body comes back to where it was at baseline, which for most of these guys still is suboptimal, but it's wherever it was. And it usually does that pretty quickly within a couple of days. Can you, through medication, actually just work through the brain and the pituitary gland to, to trigger it, to tell the, the testes to increase testosterone, as opposed to adding in exogenous testosterone? Is that a treatment option? Yeah, so there actually are a couple of pills that uh, people have tried. They're anti-estrogen pills, which is interesting. People think of testosterone as the male hormone, estrogen is the female hormone. That's nonsense. Women need testosterone just like men do, and men need estrogen believe it or not, for a lot of the actions of testosterone within the brain, the way it works for sex drive and some other things is actually by testosterone getting converted to estrogen right there in the cells that need it. So these anti-estrogen pills make the pituitary gland uh, experience the world or their environment as if there's not enough testosterone and they'll send out more signal to the testicles. And so there's a common, um, commonly prescribed medicine called Clomid or Clomiphene citrate that's used for that. And some people feel like that's more natural. The problem is, is that it's not nearly as effective because even though we fooled the pituitary gland, we actually need the estrogenic effects that come from testosterone. So by blocking it, we may raise testosterone levels in our blood but the men don't feel symptomatically as good as if they were on testosterone. Okay. Um, so switch back to you, Marianne, for a moment. Um, so, you know, there's kind of a joke, oh, we don't have sex, we, we're married. You know, it's like once you get married and it, there's a natural, immediate <laughs> like, uh, reduction of sexual desire, libido. You know, it's kind of a, you know, like a joke, um, but it seems there's some unfortunate fact behind the joke for a lot of people. What do you make of, of like the joke? Like, you know, once you're married, things change for couples. Well, it is true that when people get used to anything sexually, that, and that could mean uh, a behavior or a particular partner or what have you, they can lose some intensity from that, whatever they're used to. So that works against people when they've been together for a while. So it doesn't mean necessarily marriage, but just a long-term relationship. It's natural for people to be a little less excited by the same stimuli, meaning the partner. Um, so the other, another problem is that people get stuck in ruts. They start to do together what feels good, and then they'll just keep doing that. And that gets boring, so they lose the uh, interest of sex. And uh, another issue, another way to look at this too, is that we don't really long for what we have. We long for what we don't have. And that goes for everything. Right. So, you know, if your fridge is full of your favorite food, you're not really longing for it anymore. It's the stuff that you can't get a hold of. So, you know, there is that element too. So what that simply means is that people um, have to put more attention to um, certain things that can amp up 
excitement. So that would be, you know, the typical thing you hear about doing things differently. That really is important because when we do something different, even slightly different, <coughs> it, it captures our attention. It captures our partner's attention. And the more you're attentive, uh, the more involved you are going to be in the moment. So doing things different is really helpful. Um, and being conscious of, um, you know, what, what emotional experience you're having in the moment, because ultimately vulnerability is what uh, brings so much to a new part, to be a new relationship and uh, to any excitement. Meaning that if you think back in your life to the best sex you've had, there was an element of vulnerability in those moments. It might've been you were vulnerable because you were with a partner you didn't know well, or you were vulnerable because you were doing something you weren't used to. But it's that emotion that is critical for that for amping up excitement. So when people are doing the same stuff and they're together for a long time and they don't make an effort to create situations where they or their partner are feeling vulnerable, that's a problem. So being conscious about that. How can I allow myself to be more vulnerable here? What can we do to create that? What can we do to create that for my partner? That's a great question. Can you give a couple examples of what a couple, someone within a couple could do to be more vulnerable, to create novelty, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So more vulnerable would be really anything they're not used to doing would create that feeling or walking the edge of what they're willing to do. Okay. So just kind of like playing on that edge and um, like allowing some of that anxiety and tension to come through. Um, oh, yeah. It doesn't. So let me just act for clarity. And it doesn't necessarily have to just be sexual on the edge of the sexual discomfort. You're talking about like, parasailing or bungee jumping or a new sport or a new hobby or you know anything like that too as well right? I love that question because it's true if, especially if you're doing that with your partner or you somehow associate that with your partner or the um the feeling safe again with your partner that's going to add some kind of depth with with relation to vulnerability so I, I that's a really cool question and it's also emotional vulnerability so you know staying deeply connected to your partner during the lovemaking process really showing up um that's a vulnerable experience and it is always a vulnerable experience so allowing for that level of emotional connection doesn't have to be all the time but allowing for that can kind of keep uh that depth alive in a relationship nice yeah um, I want to switch to um, premature ejaculation. <laughs> it just crossed my mind. I was, for some reason, I looked at the picture behind you and I was like, <laughs> I don't know why. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Uh, Dr. Freud, so you guys can try. Right, right, right. Yeah. The ink blot test. Um, mm -hmm. I was just thinking of like premature ejaculation with some of the stuff you're saying because, you know, it's about it's excitement right. uh, intensified. But I have to imagine from an evolutionary biological perspective, there's not just a thing as a premature ejaculation. The faster you ejaculate, the better right. for your own survival, you know, within your species, because in the savannas of Africa or whatever, you, you know, can't be spending too much time having pleasure. You got to look around for, you know, threats to your survival. Yes. That is no longer a problem for the most, most of us here in the West. You know, we don't have to look around for lions, tigers, and bears, or oh my. Um, but you know, let's talk about from a medical perspective and a psychological perspective, the integration of two premature ejaculation. Great. So, you know, I wrote about this in my last book, The Truth About Men and Sex. And um, if I may, it's a sexist terminology. Okay. 
And here's the reason why. So imagine a man is making out with a girl. Um, they're in the truck or their car. They're, you know, they're dating and, and things get hot and heavy. And the man ejaculates before he wants to, right? We call that premature ejaculation. He's shamed. And he's worried what she's going to think, what she might say to her girlfriends, whatever. Imagine the reverse. The same guy, same girl are making out and they're doing some heavy stuff and she has an orgasm. That's pretty awesome. Pretty awesome, right? There's nobody that would be shamed in that case. She would have had a good experience. The man would think, oh my God, I'm the world's best lover and she's so turned on by me. And everything is fine. So the question is, why do we even have this terminology premature ejaculation? There is a reason for it. And the, and the reason is, is that we have the stereotype about men that's wrong. And the stereotype is that men are all about themselves. Okay. They engage in sexuality. It's really just for their own pleasure. But a man who ejaculates quickly, he's had his pleasure. He's had the ultimate payoff, which is the orgasm but he doesn't feel good about it because it's actually not all about him in that case. It's he feels badly because he hasn't engaged in enough activity for him to think he did a good job by his partner. That's the story. And so is it shameful? Yes, it is, but it's an interesting way. I think premature ejaculation gives us a little window into how our attitudes and beliefs about men and male sexuality are absolutely wrong. Wow. That's a lot of food for thought. Mm. I really like that. So, you know, if we put, you know, so what then would you, Marianne, let's switch to you if you're working with a, a man in a, in a couple mm-hmm. and he has that concern, he has the shame, you know, um, what might you do to work with him on mm-hmm. that? Oh, there's a lot. And Abe didn't address, um, it, the, the fact that some SSRIs have a side effect of delaying orgasm. And so, you know, some urologists will off-label prescribe SSRIs or an anesthetic for the penis, right? So there are things he could do medically too. Um, so you might want to... Well, you... we, well, we treat them. Yeah. But I just want to point out that, <laughs> that the question itself is really very interesting. And you know, we're talking about sexuality. And I think we come into all our conversations about sexuality with a mindset. And men have gotten a bad rap in many ways. It's hard to say it in this time and, and day and age. But there, in some ways, I think things are exactly wrong. But the point is, is that men do feel terrible. It affects something like 20% of men regardless of age. And, um, and there are some things we can do about it. So for, as a physician, there are medicines we can prescribe, including, as Marianne says, some of the antidepressants that have a side effect we take advantage of, which is they can prolong the time until ejaculation. But don't they also dampen possibly one's sexuality? They They can. So, you know, we're playing with a little bit of push and pull, but usually at the doses that we're doing it, if, if they guys get control, you know, and they can last longer, that's super form. And then there, there's some sprays you can use that, you know, give less sensation. And then there's stuff that's really in Marianne's wheelhouse mm-hmm. around uh, behavioral techniques right. to control ejaculation. So about 20% of men do ejaculate within three minutes of entry. And I think that's just an important distinction within three minutes because what's being shown on porn is so different that everyone's getting a warped 
opinion on, you know, what, what is typical um, in terms of how long a, a man can last thrusting. But at any rate, the things that uh, a sex therapist would do to be helpful with the with this man, first of all, there are sex toys. Um, one of them is called a fleshlight, for example. So they're intended to mimic the feeling of a of the of a body. And so we would encourage a man to masturbate with that and start to become hopefully more tuned into his own body. So he has a better sense of what like a trigger moment would be for him when he is absolutely inevitably going to orgasm. And he might be able to learn to kind of like keep his um, excitement under that trigger point with the help of this sex toy so that when he's with a partner, he's better able to maybe move in ways that won't quite um, trigger an orgasm. And that's another piece of this is his um, feeling more confident in his lovemaking outside of using his genitals. So that would mean, you know, kissing and touching and cuddling during intercourse, which would potentially be less stimulating for him, but very stimulating for his partner buys him some time. So these are different ways to give him some more control um, and to be able to delay the process. And also, you know, I talk with my clients about expecting, you know, the worst, meaning he's going to have an orgasm sometimes before he wants to. Most men will, whether or not they feel like they have a problem with premature ejaculation. So what can he do to plan for that? So that might mean he has, you know, some sex toys available that is in a drawer next to his bed. So he has an orgasm faster than he wants. He pulls out some sex toys and they continue the, their lovemaking or he, you know, use, does oral sex or what have you. But he has a plan so that it's not like, oh, my gosh, now what? Well, he knows now what. So hopefully that would decrease his anxiety in the, during the process because he knows what he's going to do. Uh, if he has an orgasm, um, but also then he allows, you know, time to stay connected and the process that the lovemaking doesn't stop and there's not some abrupt shift and people aren't angry. You know, that's important that they just, that, that the couple stays together and finds other ways to connect and um, the process remains loving and not shaming. And, and I have to imagine that takes a pretty high, high level of communication skills. Yeah. Like during before, during, and after. You're right. And oftentimes I'll encourage men to bring their partner into the office so we can talk about it, the three of us. Yeah. Nice, nice. Are there differences uh, with homosexual men in terms of the percentages? I don't know. I think they're the same, okay. same percentages. Interesting. Um, back to you, Dr. A, a question. How do you know if low testosterone is not a symptom of something else? versus it is itself the problem? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so there's a little bit of chicken and egg with all of that. Um, but you know, it, practically what it comes down to is that, um, you know, so there are a number of things that can contribute to low testosterone. Not everybody wants to be treated. Uh, you know, things that we look for, things like pituitary tumors, which you can detect often with blood tests. Um, people who have sleep apnea can have lower testosterone and they get it treated. They may get improve their testosterone. Uh, anybody who's got any kind of disordered sleep, people who are doing the graveyard shift at work or whatever it is, or they're just uh, have insomnia, um, stress, whatever, the testosterone levels tend to be lower. We never measure testosterone levels in hospitalized patients, for example, 
because they always come back low. Okay. Between stress and sleep or whatever. But yeah. you know, men, if a man, you know, I talked earlier in, in, in the show about this 42 year old guy. You know, if a guy comes in and his sex drive is low, he's not on uh, troublesome medications that might do that. Um, his marriage is good. He, you know, he feels some general, you know, attractiveness towards his wife or his partner. Um, and his testosterone comes back low. The chances of us helping him by raising testosterone is 80% plus. It's pretty darn good. So, um, you know, to some extent, there's an attitude about testosterone, like we need to be very careful about starting it. You know, maybe the guy's going to be stuck on it for life, which we talked about, which is not true. Uh, maybe there are these different risks, which turn out also it appears to not be true, like prostate cancer issues, cardiovascular issues. Um, my own belief is that when, and philosophy is that if a guy comes in and has a problem, and I've got a treatment for him that I think has a decent chance of helping him without causing too much harm, I think it's worth a trial of treatment. And th that trial may be three months, maybe six months. If it doesn't get any better at six months, it's probably not the problem, um, but it's worth trying it. And our, we're successful in a, in a very large majority of men. This is great. And you mentioned different ways to get testosterone into the body. You mentioned Clomid. What, what are your thoughts on like IP morally as a treatment? Yeah, this one. Of the, so there's this whole new group of products that are out there that are trying to take the um, do what growth hormone was considered the key agent probably ten years ago before it came under a cloud. So a number of physicians lost their licenses for the use of growth hormone, and and um, and so there are these new agents. We don't have a, a, any real data on them. There's some people who swear by them, and um, but you know, it's hard. it's hard to know. I've been very interested in the growth hormone story for many years. Um, I just don't have that much experience with it. Got it. We need more research is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> Always. Yeah, anyways. So, you know, someone watching this, listening to this, and they're like on the edge of like, wow, you know, I recognize myself in what I hear you both talking about, or I recognize that my partner is dealing with some of those same issues what would you recommend to them? Like, is there, like you're part, you have a diploma, Marianne, in sex therapy. How would someone find a sex therapist if they're not going to see you in Boston, Massachusetts? Uh -huh. Same with you, Dr. Abe. Like if they're in Boston, Massachusetts, obviously they can come see you or maybe they can fly in to see you. They don't necessarily have to live there. But, you know, for how do people find people like you if they don't, can't find you too? Mm -hmm. So uh, sex therapists often belong to an organization called ASECT. Uh, that's the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. Okay. And so um, on that website, people can find referrals to sex therapists in their area. Okay, good. Um, so that's where I would recommend people go if they're looking for a sex therapist. If they're looking for um, a physician, um, those would be different websites. If they're looking for like a, um, a female sexual medicine physician, I would send them to a website called the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. Good. 
um, and .org, iswish.org. They also have a referral um, network on the website. And so you can find a urologist or a gynecologist that's educated along these lines. That's really important for women with sexual pain or women who are um, wanting to uh, explore hormone options and they don't uh, necessarily find someone locally that's educated in that. So Iswish is the place to go for that. And then urologists, like where would you? So, there, so there's also a website for a group for the Sexual Medicine Society of North America. Okay. It's got a little bit of an awkward uh, website name. If I get it right, it's sexhealthmatters.org. Sexhealthmatters.org. Mm -hmm. And so men who have problems and women who have sexual issues, but like erection problems, premature ejaculation, difficulty having an orgasm, which we call delayed uh, ejaculation or delayed orgasm, low, low desire, low testosterone, and also Peyronie's disease, which is a curve of the erection um, from scar tissue. Those are all issues that, that sexual medicine doctors specialize in, sexhealthmatters.org. Now, of course, I'm going to recommend people see you too. <laughs> so I would people both find your, your, your written material, your books, and also to see you as clinicians. Uh, well, everything's on my website, drbrandon.net. So that's D-R-B-R-A-N-D-O-N.net. You know, and one of the things that um, people who want to see me but can't for whatever reason, I encourage them to get an ebook that I wrote. And I think that you mentioned it at the beginning of the um, podcast. It's uh, called Unlocking the Sexy and Surrender, Using the Neuroscience of Power to Recharge Your Sex Life. For people who are just looking to um, amp up their sexual satisfaction in their relationship, it's a really easy, accessible ebook. Um, and very inexpensive, and I think it offers quite a bit. So I would suggest if they're not really concerned in particular about a sexual problem, but more just want to enhance their intimate relationship, that would be a good place. It's on my website, and it's also on Amazon. Make sure to include that in the show notes. Uh, how about you, Dr. Abe? So I would refer people to the, the website for my medical practice, which is called Men's Health Boston, and the website is menshealthboston.com. And, um, and I encourage people to get, I like my last book. Uh, it's called The Truth About Men and Sex. And it's a lot of stories of uh, patients who have come to see me. A lot of my patients recognize other former patients of mine in the book and their symptoms. They say, oh my God, that's exactly like me. And it goes through some of the things that we do and what we've learned and the insights that I've gained over 30 years of taking care of men. Nice. And I'd remiss, this is the 21st century. We've got to talk about social media. <laughs> and, uh, your, your Twitter handle, and then talk briefly about the, some of the videos you put out. And then also, uh, Babe, you on Twitter as well. Oh, thanks, Mike. You have a great uh, Twitter account, too. <laughs> yeah, I'm at Dr. Brandon, and um, I do do little 60-second of sex videos. I try to do several a week, just little bits of information that can be helpful for people in their relationships. Um, yeah, social media has been a lot of fun. Cool, nice. And how about you, Dr. Abe? My Twitter handle is at Dr. Morgenthaler, where doctor is just D-R. And Morgenthaler is a long name, M-O-O-R-G-E-N-T-A-L-E-R. -E -E awesome. Well, Marianne, great to see you again. Dr. Abe, great to meet you. <laughs> I want to thank you both for coming together. This is awesome. I'd like to invite you back because ultimately we've, we've touched the surface on many different things. 
I have to imagine that we can do a deep dive on any one thing and, and there's a lot of issues we didn't get a chance to cover. So please come back at a future time. Hey, My pleasure. You. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Mike. Great to be with you. Guys.